the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbbVie, Vee, who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbbVie scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness and today offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar 1 disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbbVie's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abvie.com or follow at AbbVie on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. This episode is also brought to you by Alchemies. Alchemies is a global biopharmaceutical company developing innovative medicines in the field of neuroscience with products that treat alcohol dependence, opioid dependence, schizophrenia, and bipolar 1 disorder. To learn more, please visit Alchemy's website at www.alchemies.com or follow at Alchemy's on Twitter and LinkedIn. Today, we are talking with singer, songwriter, and musician Christine Meredith Flaherty, otherwise known as the multi-platinum and Grammy-nominated artist K-Flay. You may know K-Flay from songs such as High Enough and Blood in the Cut. Her music has been described as inimitable storytelling, personable and colorful, neither an escape from reality nor a shun of the fantastical. Instead, it's a playful frolic into what makes us simply human. K-Flay has a new album coming out September 15th called Mono, which includes the singles Shy and Raw Raw, which are out now. She will be touring the Northeast in August and then has European shows in September and October. Check out K-Flay's music, tour info, and merch at kflay.com. Now, on the Going There podcast, we have the tough conversations to address important issues so that we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, and get the care we need. And one of the most important issues that we face on our mental health journey is the concept of connection. As human beings, we often crave connection, connection to ourselves and the things that matter to us, as well as connections to others. And when we struggle with mental illness, one of the main ways we suffer is that we feel that we lose those important connections. So for example, if we struggle with depression, we may be less likely to connect to the good feeling that can come with doing something that we typically enjoy. Or perhaps our anxiety prevents us from engaging in social activities, such as traveling or going to parties that might otherwise give us a chance to connect with others. 
And so we hope to manage our mental health in a way that reduces the experiences that may interfere with how we connect to ourselves and others. Now, sometimes this process can be very straightforward. The less we suffer emotionally, the more we can connect to ourselves and others. But oftentimes there are emotions, thoughts, and behaviors that have a more complicated effect on how we connect with ourselves and others. And in fact, painful emotions, thoughts, and behaviors can sometimes represent or be a consequence of our trying to connect. So for example, Kayflay and I talk about the complexities of alcohol use and its effect on connection. When we either abuse or are addicted to alcohol, the harm that it does to our ability to connect often becomes very self-evident. When we drink too much, we may be incoherent or black out. So we lose that connection to ourselves, our thoughts and feelings at a given moment. Or perhaps we are less able to be empathic or considerate to others or even aggressive while we are drinking. And we thus may damage our connection to others in those moments. But for many of us, drinking is seen, at least initially, as a way to connect. Perhaps we hope that it calms our minds so that we feel a wider range of emotions. Or drinking allows us to feel more a part of parties or other social activities. In fact, many of us see times that we've been drunk or high as fun experiences where we felt more connected with ourselves and with others. And as a result of the sometimes complicated relationship that a specific thought, emotion, or behavior has to our ability to connect to ourselves and others, as we are getting help for something we struggle with, it often may be more difficult than we realize to give up what may otherwise be an unhealthy behavior, thought process, or emotional pattern. Because as we get better or improve our ability to connect in some ways, we may either fear or actually lose our ability to connect in other ways. And this may unintentionally confuse us or undermine our motivation to make changes that may otherwise improve our mental health. So a recognition and understanding of the way a given behavior, thought, or emotion functions in terms of our ability to connect will be critical in how we understand ourselves and get better on our mental health journey. And Kay Flay and I talk about this issue in terms of her own struggle with drinking, as well as her understanding of the use of the concepts of permanence, as well as being quote unquote chill in how she connects to herself and others. And we discuss how she uses the concept of connection on her mental health journey, including as a way for her to cope with her recent hearing loss in one ear. Now, as we progress through this season of going there, our goal is to bring you, the audience, further into the conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions you have that have been sparked by our conversations with these incredible artists, and topics you'd love to see addressed. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. These help other folks find their way into the conversation so they can go there with us. So let's go there and listen to what K-Flay has to say. Hey, Christine, welcome to Going There. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off with a song of yours that you think is particularly emblematic of your mental health journey. I, I have a song on my last record called Maybe There's a Way that I wrote with one of my longtime collaborators and one, actually one of my one of my best friends. We met through music, but then just just became very close and incidentally grew up like 30 minutes from each other outside of Chicago, though we didn't know each other. And I wrote it right before I quit drinking. And I think I was just, you know, when you get in that headspace of like, well, it's too late to make the change or like you kind of get caught up in like the timing of change. I think the song was a turning point for me where I was like, you know, the, the best time to do anything is right now. 
I think that as a as a mentality and a mindset for me as per my own mental health and how I act and behave to try to maximize my kind of like present focus and member of society-ness of myself. That's a really good guiding light of just like, now is the perfect time to do that thing. When you're talking about this, it, it reminds me of something. I think this is a quote of yours. So tell me if I'm wrong, is that you don't buy into the permanence of lows or you don't want absolutely. People to, and, and, and that concept of permanence is, is very powerful when it comes to anything mental health, because one of the things that we get caught into is the assumption that we feel a certain way or we're engaged in a certain behavior. And this is it. This is the way it's going to be for the rest of our lives. And that is dangerous. Oh my gosh. You know, I'll say two things on that note. I, I couldn't agree more the illusion of that permanence is so is so detrimental to us on both sides, by the way. So like one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently and using as a way to visualize this is like the Jesus lizard. So the Jesus lizard just walking on water, just like moving, right? And I, I like this image because for me, I, I feel like I've been trying to be in that headspace of like, Oh, you're having a great night. Everything's going great. Everyone loves your song. Everyone's telling you how great you are. Moving right along. Oh, you put out a song. Everybody hates it. Tells you you're trash. You feel depressed. You're alone. You got broken up with. Moving along. Like just this idea of not buying into the highs or the lows. And I think there's, you know, because sometimes I think people have, a hard time not buying into the high. And I think that can be oftentimes just as detrimental. Um, so I've really been, I've really been trying to, especially in the last year, kind of adopt that more like an equanimity as per my experience. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, like on stage right now, actually, right before I play, maybe there's a way I've been talking about my hearing loss. And, you know, every night on this tour, I'm so, I'm actually just astounded because, you know, if you had asked me in the fall, are you going to be able to tour, put out a record in like seven, eight months? I would have been like, no, but here I am, you know? And so I, I say this to the, to the crowd, like the power of time, whether it's one second, one minute, one year, whatever, like time is just like, there is a future and it does look different. And one of the things that I think can be very appealing is the notion that when we have a negative thought, it's irrational or it's distorted or it's mm. somehow can be easily dismissed. And, and on the one hand, it would be easy to say, Oh, you know, don't think of anything as, as permanent, you know, especially when it's something that's bad, but giving up the idea that good things are permanent is very frightening because to some degree, a lot of what we do hinges upon our kind of assumption that things are going to be permanent, whether we like it or not. You know, people yeah. get married with the idea of permanence. They go into a career with the idea of permanence, that family of origin feels often like permanence, friends. And, and a lot of times the idea, if we were to give up the permanence of the negative things. And then they were like, well, we have to give up the permanence of the positive things. I, I don't know that everybody would take that deal. 
I think it's, I think it's a, it's a nuanced deal, you know, and I think it involves a high degree of non-attachment, you know, which is to say you invest your love and your time in the things that matter to you while simultaneously understanding that so many forces beyond our control may wrest those things away from us. And, you know, the great joy of life is giving a shit like period. I mean, I think if you, if you go, if you across like job relationships, self, most of the, if you ask most people with a pet, why do you love your pet? It basically boils down to you give a shit about your pet, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And it's, it's that, it's that giving a shit that, that kind of matters. And the, and the, the sort of, um, I don't know what we would say, the, the importance of the moment giving a shit, because giving a shit is something that if we don't do as an active is, is giving a shit a full verb or is that there's more things in there? I think it's, I think it's one word giving a shit, giving a shit is one word. So giving a shit, the verb is something that is an active verb. It makes sense to me, unfortunately. Yeah, me too. And if, if we're not, and if we're not doing that as an active thing, then the question is like, what was the point of giving the, giving a shit in the first place? If it's passive, because you don't get really any of the benefits of it. Absolutely. And I think I like this, the smushing of giving a shit, the condensing of it. It does feel often difficult, you know, just sort of on a related thing, because I've been thinking about it on on my new record. The first track is is titled, Are You Serious? Question, question mark. And for me, that that has two two meanings. The first is like, when something bad or upsetting or painful or disappointing happens, we all kind of do this motion with our hands and we go, are you serious? Like you're on your way to work. Someone like smashes, smashes the back of your car. You're like, are you serious? Like, okay. So on the one hand, it is this, this natural human cry of exasperation. On the other hand, are you serious? Are you going to take this life seriously? You know? And I guess in a way it's a version of, giving a shit verb, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because I remember people used to ask me what kind of music do I like? And I always be like, well, I like all different kinds of music. And I don't know what year it was. Maybe it was 2002, 2003. And I was seeing Bruce Springsteen on, I think the rising tour. And I'm, 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 I like Bruce Springsteen music, but I'm not like a, like a mega fan or, or something like that. So I had never seen him in concert. And he was, I think, in his 50s or 60s. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, millions of dollars. He's in giant stadium. He's like a god, you know? And if he didn't come out and play that show like he was 17 years old, and if he didn't get it right, he was never getting out of his parents' basement in South Jersey. And after seeing that, when someone asked me, like, what kind of music do I like? It's like, I like that kind of music. Mm-hmm. I like it when the artist understands how how special this moment is, you know, a concert is special, you know, a song on a record is special. And the idea, I think that, 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 that changed a lot of how I, how I listened to music because it, it kind of made me listen to, am I hearing that from the artist? Like, do they care to the point where I'm going to go there and care with them? You know, and that, that became kind of a defining thing, not only with music, but then I started thinking about that in my own life. It's like, am I, am I treating each moment of my life, like he treated, he treated that concert, which I know it's not easy to do, but it's a good, it's a good ideal. 
I I relate to that so much as a enjoyer and consumer of art and music and all, all sorts of cultural products that when I when I feel this intangible caring, I there is a tenderness, a devotion, and a joy that I feel personally in just being even adjacent to it. Sometimes even just bearing witness to somebody else really caring about something that is like, it's like a panacea. You know, I, I see that and I'm like, I'm cured. I'm at church. You know, um, one thing that my friend Julie said to me, I was like going through this bad breakup and I was, I was very upset. <laughs> she said something to me that like, it just somehow it kind of connected a lot of dots. And I was like, I said to her, I kind of lamented. I was like, I'm just, I, I can't be casual like that. And she goes, I know. And it's my favorite thing about you. You are not casual. And her kind of reframing that for me of like, you know, my relationships tend to be very intense, you know, and I, I mean, my friendships, like all my family, my friendships, all types of relationships, my relationship with music. And she was like, that's your superpower is that you're not casual, like never, never let go of that. And I think in our in our modern society, this kind of casual, oh, like maybe I'll text them back. Maybe I won't. Maybe, you know, this, there are so many opportunities to be casual and it kind of gets lauded a little bit in our popular culture. But like, I'm kind of like, fuck that. Fuck being casual. Like, I'm serious as hell. And the, the term chill seems to be very... <laughs> very powerful especially you yeah. know and, and i and i i don't know when that happened but i i knew the minute it started getting said i was like and people were like oh you know this person has no chill i was like oh god that is so me i get because i don't even really know what chill is so it, it's sort of like i'm pretty sure i don't have it and i don't i don't know exactly what the what all the emphasis on that as being so good is because like you said, it's, it's, it sort of feels like, well, where does that, where does that go? I guess if you're chill so you can connect with yourself and you can connect with others and connect to what you're doing, that, that feels to me like something that could be very powerful. If you're chill so that, like you said, like you're not serious, you don't care. I mean, every, everybody has a right to lead their life the way they want. I just, I'm not exactly sure where that, where that goes. I think it's my understanding of chillness as a, as a concept. I think the, the former, which is kind of like to me, a state of the nervous system being down a little bit and having openness and capacity to engage with the world. That's good. Like, but I don't think that's chillness you know, in the, in the, in the modern sense, I think chillness to me has a lot to do with power. I think that there's a, a cultural conflation of chillness with like status, like in a relationship, if you are very chill, you are sort of inherently interpersonally more powerful because you're not vulnerable. You've got that, that shield around you. Nothing can really hurt you. And I, I, I don't think, you know, I think in the short term, 
that can protect an individual from pain. But I think in the long term, it insulates you from a lot of joy, you know, and a lot of meaningful experience. And so it's like, it, 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 chillness feels like hedging your bets. Yeah, no, I, I, this, this power play concept makes a lot of sense. And, and, and something that I'll talk about with people I work with is you, you always try to think in terms of, well, assume success. So like assume success in a relationship, assume success in a business venture, you know, in a, in a passion, whatever it might be. And, and the thing that I would always ask people is like, well, I'm being chill. It's like, so, but where does that go? Right? Because the only unique thing, the only original thing that we have to offer the world is us. And if we're chill by definition, all the vulnerabilities, all the nooks and crannies, like we're, we're not going to be in an opportunity to share. So you might get that power at some point, which is great, but long-term assuming the relationship works, what now do you have to offer? Because chill kind of looks the same across people. Like your chill doesn't look that much different than another person's chill. And so it, 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 I think the, the issue becomes, it's like, so you got that power temporarily, but you've lost all the opportunity for intimacy. Totally. And I love this. I, I don't know if I've ever thought about it like this. So I appreciate you putting in this context, but it's like chillness dilutes, you know, it, it tamps down the spikes of an individual. And as a consequence, right, it kind of flattens out all of the idiosyncrasies of it, of a person, which is the idiosyncrasies are why we love people and, and what we remember about them. You know, when people like at your funeral or whatever, people, people talk about your idiosyncrasies. Like when, when people remember individuals or you write a love letter to your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your partner, your crush, whatever, like you point out the little things they do, you know? So I agree with you that the, the chillness, it, it, it's like a, it paves over individuality and you're right, individuality in terms of novel ideas, expression, creativity, all of that, that's all we have. Yeah. It's, it's interesting bringing back to the concept then of sobriety, because Mm -hmm. one, one thing I did an interview a while back with, with Ian Mackay of, of minor threat and Fugazi. And I was Mm. asking him because he, he did straight edge. You know, I, I was so, I was so impressed with the idea of like, now the idea of straight edge is kind of a cultural concept, but it's like, you came up with that when you were a teenager. How did you do that? Like, what, like, what, what, how, how were you able to conceptualize that? How were you able to implement that? And he said it was very simple. He's like, he's like, I, I'm, I'm guided by having a visceral connection to my life. I want to connect viscerally to the things that are in my life. And, you know, people would go to a concert and they'd be like, oh, I saw Jimi Hendrix. And, I, and I'd be like, oh my God. He'd be like, how was he? He's like, I don't, I don't remember. I was totally wasted, you know? And it's like, so in his mind, there was at least the way he described it to me when we talked was like that to him disconnected him, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that people struggle with with sobriety is whether or not drinking connects you to everything because it maybe it mellows you out or you feel like you're part of things or it, it, it holds you back. And I'm kind of curious for you building on this concept of chill and all that kind of stuff. Did that play any part in your kind of decision around the concept of drinking? Absolutely. So I have kind of an interesting relationship with alcohol that has 
evolved over time, which is that my biological father was a very serious abuser of alcohol and drugs, which led to his death when I was 14. And he had a, he had a very upsetting and unfortunate death, which is, you know, he died alone in a bathroom and no one found him for three days. Like that sucks. It's not a good way to go. Who That was painful for me as someone watching him kind of sink further and further into that abyss. So I had a, starting at a very early age, I, I had a, a lot of assumptions and a lot of beliefs about alcohol and drugs. And those beliefs were largely like, I don't like that stuff and I don't want to do it. So I spent my teenage and early twenties years essentially being straight edge, though I had no vocabulary for it. Everyone just knew, oh, Christine doesn't drink and doesn't do whatever. And, but I do want to emphasize, I was quite rigid in, in my thinking. And I think I had a lot of judgment. I had a lot of black and white thinking about being altered and what that meant. And, and I think I had a lot of preconceptions that that was fundamentally weak. You know, I associated it with sort of these concepts of strength and weakness, which I was a kid, I was coping with it, whatever. So then I started touring and became a musician. (laughs) And of course, especially early days backstage, you get a six pack and a bag of chips that, you know, and that, that's it. That's the culture. And I was, I was also around almost entirely men. And I kind of conformed, I guess. Now, when we speak about connection, the early part of my drinking career or whatever, I actually think was incredibly expansive for me. I think it was a way of connecting. Um, It disabused me of a lot of judgment that I had about what it means to be intoxicated. And that was important for me, I think, with regard to my my development of gray area as an adult, right? Which is like, that's kind of what you do as a grown up is you just expand and navigate the gray area and you become curious instead of judgmental. And, and I think that's that's where my head was at. Now, some kind of point got passed. Where, to Ian's point, I started using alcohol sometimes as a way to disconnect. You know, where I think for many years I I used it in a way not only to connect to people around me, but also to connect to parts of myself I hadn't explored. (laughs) You know, like in some ways I feel like it it did allow me to do that. It also allowed me to get outside of these rules I had for how I'm supposed to act and who I'm supposed to be. It gave me a little bit of flexibility and freedom there, but there was some, some point, and it's hard to know exactly what that point was when I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I want to be 10 feet outside of my brain. And there's this stuff that's like in a can and it'll help me leave. And that to me, I was like, okay, that's not good. That's not the point of this, you know? So it's kind of a mixed answer, but there was a period of time in which I think alcohol did provide connection and then, and then it stopped. Yeah. I, I think for me, the, the way it was, it was, it was very similar, which is in, in fact, including the rigidity, 
you know, when I was younger, very rigid ideas about drugs and alcohol. And later on, when I experimented more with it, alcohol in particular felt like it was a conduit to a whole type of experience that was, was very, very exciting. Like the idea that the night could just go anywhere and that you could start and make friends along the way and like leave with these like really fun experiences and it could bring people together and you would talk about it the next day and you talk about, you know, sometimes some people I'll talk about things. It's been like 10, 20 years, 30 years. We talk (laughs) about the exact same, the exact same things. But, but it was, I started to notice after the fact, not during that, it was disconnecting me from some people because like, as an example, like I'd be going out and all I'd be thinking about was like, okay, the night is going to get expansive and drinking and whatever. And and there was maybe someone out of town that was just coming to visit, you know, and say hi. And I just was in a completely different mindset. And you kind of start looking back and you think like, how many people did you miss the connection with? Because your mind was Mm. so focused on that thing. And it's like, I, it wasn't like I was trying to avoid anything, but, but inadvertently, I think, I think missed a lot of opportunities and, you know, I hopefully didn't put off too many people, but that was for me, I think part of the decision to be like, I don't know if this is going to work for me as well as I thought it was, you know, early on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the feeling I had is like, oh, this, this thing that's supposed to do X, which is like, relax me and open my world. It's not doing that. So why the hell am I drinking it? It's making me feel anxious and like stressed, you know? So I totally agree. And I think it's interesting because a lot of my, a lot of my friends have kind of had, I mean, no one, no one had really exact, my exact experience as a teenager, but like many of my friends have been on a similar kind of path, which is like, you experiment, you, you understand what intoxication means what it does or doesn't do for you. And after a period of time, you're like, you know what? I don't, that that's not serving me in the way that I, that it once did or the way that I once thought it did. And so what I, what I've enjoyed about my kind of like renew my, my sobriety part two, or, you know, whatever you want to call it is like, and I don't know if you relate to this, in the same way that drinking could make the night feel expansive and you feel like a superhero, I think abstaining from alcohol also makes the night feel expansive and like I'm a superhero. Just just in a totally different way. Like the other night we like this is a great example. There was so we played a festival in Kansas City. So we were done at like seven or something. We were done early. And I was texting a couple just of the touring crew because there was I love going out dancing and there was like a UK DJ group playing in town that night. It was a Saturday night in Kansas city. I was like, you guys want to go? So three of us went, we're all, none of us were drinking. They, they drink, but I just think they weren't in the mood or something. And we just went out dancing for a few hours. So much fun. We're just like seeing all these weird people and people watching. I'm engaged. I'm like noticing everything, but I'm also like, in my space of letting go. And I'm so used to being uninhibited while sober now that it's just like, it's second nature. And then when we got home at like one thirty or whatever, then I read my book for an hour. You know what I mean? I'm like, so I get, I kind of get the best of both worlds. Like I'm able to, 
to still let loose and do the things I like to do and do things that are in these environments that are kind of like stereotypically connected to drugs and alcohol. But then I'm not fucked up and I can like do work or like read a complicated book when I get home. So I kind of love like how it like gives me this superpower to at any moment just be like sharp. This may sound weird, but I, I obviously recognize that daytime occurred on the weekends. Like I knew that there was sunlight. Like I, like I obviously I knew that, but, but it was almost like when I was thinking of the weekends or I, or even sometimes during the week, I was just, I didn't have any conceptualization of that time as being relevant. And I remember the first few times I started actually being present in a morning on a weekend and not, not how I usually was present, which I would usually like get maybe like three or four hours of sleep and like still be drunk and like going to a gym or something. And then I would go back to sleep for like three hours or something like that. It was like, I was like, there is something happening here that apparently other people have heard of, you know, cause I heard people would get together for runs in the morning or like, I just was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what, what, why would you, why, why would you, why would you even think about doing that? And it was like, and then I started, you started thinking about like the function. That's, that's the thing that I try to, I try to talk to people about is don't, don't judge it as drinking bad drugs, bad. Just think what function is it serving for you? And, mm-hmm. and how does it fit into the totality of all the functions of your life? Because there are, there are some people who, figure out how to like this chill thing. As an example, there are people who I think are just working nonstop, like all day and like just giving 110%. And at the end of the night, having a drink or for some people having some pot is sort of like that, that chill is something that for them doesn't disconnect them from the rest of their life. Now, I, I personally wouldn't recommend doing that because I think there's other potential negative effects. But like there is there is there is a lane there, I think, for some people, if that is how the entirety of their life works and it doesn't start to spread out. But I would always I always ask people, like, just like, look at the function, look at how it's functioning in that moment and how it's fitting in with your whole life and make your decision based on that. Not like, like you said, like, it sounds like we both had kind of these rigid, bad, good, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, how, it's like, how is it working? Cause that's how you get to know your needs as a person. It's like, what do I need that I'm drinking? Like, maybe I should ask myself that before I talk about the drinking. It's like, what do I need when I'm going out? I, I couldn't agree more. And that's why I like this idea of like your relationship with alcohol or your relationship with weed or your relationship with mushrooms or whatever. Like, if you think about that, it, it takes a lot of the it well it takes morality right out of, out of the equation. It's just basically saying like, what do we do for each other? How do we interact? And I think that's an incredibly useful lens for people to examine relationship with substance. And for me, that relationship served me for a period of time, and it was it was incredibly again it freed me. <laughs> You know, it really did kind of free me from this this rigidity that I think limited me in a lot of ways. And I'm not sure what could have shook me loose, to be honest with you, because, you know, that's like childhood trauma, family history. Like, that's a hard thing to shake. And 
I'm really grateful to have had an evolving relationship with alcohol. And I, you know, I, my manager was reminding me like early when I like started drinking, he was like, I said to, I guess I said to him one day, like, yeah, I'll probably like quit in 10 years or something. I don't know. I'll probably, I'll probably just do this for a little bit. I think I had some awareness that like, for me, it's not something I, I necessarily like love, but it it did serve, it did serve a purpose and it gave me some insight. And strange as it is, it, it did connect me to my father in a lot of ways. And I think it helped me understand why I don't want to follow in those footsteps, you know, and it, it helped me understand, oh my God, I've got so many tools at my disposal. I've got so much community at my disposal that like, yeah, if I've had a really rough one at this point, like, you know, alcohol feels to me at this time, a bit like a shortcut to a place I know how to get to. I just got to go a little bit like around the block. You know, it's like Pythagorean theorem. I'm doing A and B instead of C. So that's, that's how alcohol feels to me at this time. And it's like, I have enough tools in my repertoire to, to know how to get to that same place of connection and freedom and unselfconsciousness. But I think earlier on when I was younger, I, I didn't, and have all those tools. You know, that thing about connection to family. And so I, I didn't get a chance to say sorry about your, your dad, mm. your bio dad. I know, uh, me too. Yeah. And, but I think that when people, especially early on, like the sort of after school special, is that the only issue with connection with alcohol is somebody like peer pressuring you. Right. And it's like, okay, so you have someone who says, like, oh, you're not cool or we won't be your friend. It's like, okay, so let's just kind of assume that that kind of a relationship is a toxic one. And okay, it's kind of easy, I think, at this point to see that and say, okay, I don't want that kind of person in my life. Not that it's easy for everyone, but I I think people get there more quickly. Mm -hmm. But there is something more broadly that I think when people think about the function of alcohol is that it, I think a lot of people, especially at the beginning, don't understand, well, how, how am I going to feel connected to my family, if you know a lot of people who struggle, like as again, a lot of people who struggle with alcohol come from families that that struggle with alcoholism. Not everybody is in recovery. Not everybody's sober, and people have along the way made friendships from drinking or doing drugs or whatever. And on the one hand, it's easy to say like, well, you just got to get rid of all those people, and there may be some truth to that at some point, but it, it's 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 neither simple nor easy to do that. And I'm kind of curious, like when you started really thinking about it, like how did you manage the concept of that connection or potentially losing that connection with him or or other people? Well, you know, I was in terms of my friendships set up in, in a really good situation and with the rest of my family, which is that none of those relationships were predicated on substance use or like going out. Or, you know what I mean? It was sort of like they were, those friendships existed. And then on the side, sometimes we would drink or, you know, whatever that was. So it was, I I was lucky in that I didn't, I didn't have any like upheaval or great change in my relationships. However, I, I did have to accept that as a person who was choosing to abstain from alcohol, there were certain interactions that I was not going to be a part of. There is a, and and I think this kind of 
has interestingly dovetailed with my like sudden deafness in my in my ear because so one of the things that I always have liked about myself is that I am very uh, gregarious and socially flexible. And so I can be anyone's plus one sort of thing. You can bring me around and I'll do okay. I'm also okay being up by myself and talking to people and stuff. So one of the things that I loved doing, especially on tour, was going out somewhere and just like chatting. Maybe, you know, we're in Portland and we have friends from another band who live in Portland. And so we're all going to meet up after. Well, not only, you know, it's one thing to not drink. I can still go to bars. It's no problem. Well, then I, I go deaf in this ear and like being in loud places is nearly impossible for me to hear anything now. Because with, with one ear, with one working ear, you cannot locate sound. So environments with lots of ambient noise become these like kind of insane asylums, essentially, where it's just like your brain's like, <laughs> it's really hard to tell where anything's coming from. And it's, it's upsetting. And I actually remember like I went, my girlfriend was on tour and I, I was with her and we were going to meet up with like a bunch of their touring mates. And we like got back to the hotel and I just like burst out crying. And I was like, I can't believe like, I, I don't have that. I can't just do that anymore. You know, I can't just like go into a loud bar and everything's fine. Now, the flip side of that and the flip side of my hearing loss and my, my therapist pointed this out to me is when I go to a party now or when I go to a bar now, I pick out, I see who I'm kind of having conversation with and then I go in deep as hell because I'm like, I can't. I can't shoot the shit drunkenly because I'm not drunk. And I can't really hear anything else that's happening besides what you are saying to me. So like, you're ready to have a two hour conversation. And one of the things my therapist pointed out to me was like a lot of her patients or clients or whatever, they complain to her that like, they'll go to these parties and it's meaningless. They have no connection. So she was like, you know, the flip side of all of this, like grief and pain you're having is you get to actually have that connection that a lot of people are wanting. And I guess my, my point in telling it is I've been thinking a lot about the forms of connection that we kind of forfeit, right? When we change our behavior or when something in our life changes, when our circumstances change, but conversely, the, the types of connection that we now have access to in a different way. And so it's like, not dwelling in like deaf in this ear. I'm like, I can't just be this. I can't be the life of the party in that same way. But like, right. If I keep, if I keep going on the, on the pond, like there's actually this new way. And that's, that's exciting too. Yeah. That, that was a, I, I found that to be a very big change in social anxiety where, you know, you go someplace with the intention of, of, fitting in or being liked, which is very natural. Like you want to be part of the flow. So if you're walking around and you see people are connecting and you're not all of a sudden it's like, okay, like what's wrong with me. And that's, and, and the, but I, I found the shift from being like, but I don't really need to be at a party having those conversations. Like I really thought about it. I like, I, I don't, I don't particularly enjoy them. I don't need to be here. My only real focus here is to see if there's anybody who 
I could connect with in a different way. And then when I started thinking about it that way, I was like, so I just kind of am now just walking around and just trying to talk to people and see, is there anyone who's, who's one of my people? And if there is, that's fantastic. But if there's not, it, it's also okay because it changed it from being like, okay, I've got to make everyone in the room happy or connected to being like, well, I just, if I can get one person, that's a win. And I think that what, what you're talking about, I mean, obviously it's coming from a different place, but it's like when sometimes difficult situations, whether it's social anxiety or depression or a physical issue, it, it, it's not, you never want to say, oh, it's a blessing or whatever per se. Cause I think that invalidates the, the stress that people have gone through, but it, there is a, there is an opportunity, if you will, to look at. Like I've got to hone what it is that matters to me to make this work. I don't have the luxury anymore, the privilege, if, if you want to use that term, of just being able to be a little bit more loose with it. I've really got to focus on what matters to me. And I, I think it's super cool that you were able to discover that, even though obviously it came from a painful source. I completely agree. And I think the blessing, the, the word of this notion of the blessing, I agree with you. I, I don't love it. I think it invalidates the struggle of difficult experience, which I think is important to acknowledge. But I also believe that every change and every spike, if we go back to like the spikes of the individual, every spike is actually like, if you even envision it as like a spike, like a stalagmite or tight or whichever one or both, it bashes through a window, right? And so it does kind of open, it pokes through something. And there's actually some, if you look up through the little hole, like you say, oh, there's actually like a different world up here. So I, so I think if we, if we think about like our painful experiences or our differences or anxiety or whatever, there are ways in which that pokes holes in, in the world and it, and it gives us access to, to different experiences and, and different ways of of relating to people. And, and I think that's a, that to me feels representative because it's also saying, Hey, also this fucked up thing is happening, which is important. And so speaking of breaking through and poking holes, we, we have come <laughs> to the, we have come to the, uh, the moment in the, in the podcast where we ask the guest. So you have, you have made music that for some people is how one of the ways that they will process or understand or perhaps discover something that they're feeling or thinking about weirdo shy you know what i mean like the, these are these are things mm -hmm. where it's sort of you know some people may for the first time not have words for it and they they get it. so they get it from your music so historically in your mental health journey are there are there artists or albums or songs that you feel like either have been particularly clarifying along the way or have at one point or even now, or it's like, this is my go-to for I'm in a tough spot. I'm a creature of habit, the rigidity. I, I this is just a side note, but I, I started seeing a, a psychotherapist when I was nine. I had like horrible OCD as a, as a little, little kid. And my mom, my mom does too. So she kind of knew she knew how to see the signs and, and got me, got me like help and tools early, which is, which was awesome. And shout out to my mom. I love my mom. However, there are certain things that remain, you know, I kind of, I have my things and I have my things in places that are not detrimental to my life. I just, that's my, that's how I manage that. So my answer to this is actually quite brief, 
which is that there is a record. It's called Knives Don't Have Your Back. It is a solo record from Emily Haynes, who's the lead singer of Metric, if you are familiar with that band. She put out this, I don't know, like 20 years ago or something, a while ago. And I didn't discover it right away. But that record is like, that's the one. I just, whenever I am going through something difficult, it feels both like an acknowledgement and, and a balm. And in particular, the, the last song on the record, which is called Winning, that's kind of the one. And there's this line that she, she repeats in it. It's bad, we'll fix it. It's wrong, we'll make it all right. All right. Like it just kind of repeats over and over again. And there's something, there's something about that whole record because it's also about being a musician, <laughs> It's like about being a touring musician. You know, there's a song called Crowd Surf Off a Cliff. And and the first track is called Our Hell. And it's sort of about like how sometimes, you know, the things that other people think, oh my God, what a life. You're like, well, I'm in hell. So there's there's aspects of that that record that relate I relate to specifically also as a touring musician. But that's that's kind of the one. And I've 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 created almost a Pavlovian response now inside of myself. I started listening to that record in twenty 13. So I've been listening to that when I feel upset for 10 years. And I think it just gives me the space to feel, feel what I'm going through, but to also feel like, yeah, it's bad. We'll fix it. You know, like we're kind of ending on this note of possibility. And that, that for me has, that's kind of the one. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking with you. I, I really appreciate you sharing these ideas. Uh, things are uh, obviously going great for you in your career. So best of luck, continued success. And I hope we get a chance to talk again on the podcast. That would be great. I would love to. I, I really appreciate the chat. And it's it's really it's really fun and I think awesome to to talk about like abstinence from, or, you know, opting out of substance just as another, another way of being. And I know recovery is its own whole world and that I, that I don't know a ton about, but I, I really enjoy having conversation with folks whose like mentality is, is similar. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So there it is, Christine Meredith Flaherty, otherwise known as K-Flay talking about the concept of connection and how she utilizes that concept on her mental health journey. Now, there's so much to take away from the conversation with K-Flay, but one thing that I think is very important is that when we are trying to make changes in how we feel, think, or behave, it will be tempting to dismiss ourselves as irrational, distorted, or otherwise crazy. And this can be very appealing because it reassures us, at least momentarily, that our greatest fears are untrue and that we could easily disconnect from our so-called crazy thoughts and behaviors. But in dismissing ourselves in this way, we may lose an opportunity to better understand ourselves, who we are, and how we want to connect to ourselves and the world. So for example, Kayflay and I talk about the concept of being quote-unquote chill. Oftentimes people encourage us to chill out or relax, that our fears are crazy or unfounded. And they do so assuming that if we are more chill or relaxed, that it will reduce our suffering. But they often don't understand how our enthusiasm, excitement, or agitation that comes with our not necessarily being chill or relaxed is actually part of how we connect with ourselves and others in a way that feels good and connected at times. 
So if we just try to more generally chill out, we may be able to better connect to ourselves and others by being more present at a given moment. But we may also lose connection to our passions or excitement for our interactions with others. So instead of dismissing ourselves as crazy, if we start by trying to understand how our thoughts, feelings, or behaviors actually function in our life, we can see the ways being more energized can be both good and bad for our ability to connect. And we can then have a more nuanced view of our experience. And then we don't have to stigmatize ourselves as irrational, distorted, or crazy as we look at how a given part of our experience functions in our lives to help us connect to ourselves and others. I want to thank Kayflay for this wonderful conversation. This season of Going There is brought to you by AbV, who is driving the pursuit of better mental health. Over the last 30 years, AbV scientists and clinicians have worked to tackle the complexity of mental illness and today offer a portfolio of medicines and a pipeline of innovation that spans depression, anxiety, bipolar 1 disorder, and schizophrenia. To learn more about AbV's work to support individuals throughout their mental health journey, please visit www.abv.com or follow at AbV on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. This episode is also brought to you by Alchemies. Alchemies is a global biopharmaceutical company developing innovative medicines in the field of neuroscience with products that treat alcohol dependence, opioid dependence, schizophrenia, and bipolar 1 disorder. To learn more, please visit Alchemies' website at www.alchemies.com or follow at Alchemies on Twitter and LinkedIn. And I, of course, want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. If you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.